Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and this is our Arab Shabbat broadcast for our Internet congregation, B'nai Shalom, and welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, before we start Kiddush and get our Sabbath underway, just a couple of quick things to share with you. If you're following along with us, the counting of the Omer, we are now at day seven. We have, are celebrating our first Shabbat. Uh, following the Feast of First Fruits, and these are the, the seventh day toward the count of 50 days for the day of proclamation for Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. Uh, we are instructed to count these days, uh, and for seven Sabbaths and one, and the morrow of the seventh Sabbath is the observance. Shavuot, and we are in the count, we're at day seven, the first Sabbath after that. And each Sabbath, I'll be coming to announce to you that we're at each successive Sabbath. This Sabbath, we're at day seven of the count of 50. Now, that's leading right to Shavuot. And I want to remind everybody that Lionel Lamb Ministries will be hosting a Shavuot uh, conference for the whole weekend uh, leading to the 50th day. And it's going to be Memorial Day weekend on, on the Gentile calendar. Uh, so if you will, mark your calendars on it. We'd love to have you join us. If you'd like to be a part of it here in Oklahoma with the rest of the brethren that are coming in, it's, you can go to ShavuotEvent.com. Shavuot spelled S-H-A-V-U-O-T Event.com, and you can register to be a part of that conference. We'd love to have you come and join us and celebrate the Day of Proclamation together. Uh, also, there's other events coming up on the year. We're starting the, the um, appointed times, the Feast of the Lord. And, of course, I want you to tell you that when you start this process with Passover, Feast of Unleavened, Feast of First Fruits, and then getting to Shavuot, don't forget the fall holidays. You know, plan for those as well. Trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. They'll be in the fall. And we do host a tabernacles event uh, also, where we invite the brethren in from all over the country and other nations, for that matter, uh, to come and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles with us. Uh, those are the activities we have scheduled this year. We'd love to have you be a part of that as we um, celebrate the Feast of the Lord. Amen. All right. Without any further ado, thank you for joining us uh, this evening. And uh, let us begin with Kiddush and the blessings for Sabbath. Welcome. Please join our family as we usher in the Sabbath. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Let's see the blessing over the cup. Baruch Atadonai, 
Aheinu melech haolam, borei Amen. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. See the blessing over the bread? We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Blessed are thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Now, husbands, let's, let's bless our wives together. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you so much for my wife, Father, and the blessing that she is to me. Um, I thank you for the strength that I receive through her, Father, uh, from you. I just praise you for her, for her beauty, Father, just for um, the goodness that she is, Father. The way that she reads your word, Father, and spends time in your word, Father, I get to learn about you, Father, and motivates me to do the same. Thank you, Father, we can be an encouragement to one another, that we can be a, a team that functions and works through life together. I think that she is um, a pillar of strength, Father, for me when I'm weak, and I need to be the same thing for her, Father. I praise you, Father. I that you reveal so much of yourself um, through my wife. And I just rejoice to know this, Father. Thank you for your continual goodness, Father. Thank you. She, she sustains our home and takes care of our child and for many more to come. Thank you, Father, again, for your faithfulness to me, Father, through my wife. Um, thank you, Father, you give me the ability to care for her as well. I praise you, Father. Again, I thank you for all your continual goodness to us. In Yeshua's name, amen. Let's bless our sons.
upon you. May he lift up his countenance and grant you peace. May you be like Ruth and like Esther. May the Lord with you ever be. May he bring you home unto the land prepared for you. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michmocha. Micha mocha Ba'elimadonai Micha mocha Nedahar ba'chodesh Nohorat achilot who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else? You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord? Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch Adonai, Elohenu Melech HaAlam, Asher Natan Lanu Et Derech, HaYeshua B'Mashiach Yeshua. All together, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et HaShabbat, Lasot et HaShabbat l'adortam b'rit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael odhit le'olam, k'shashet yamim asadonai et hashmaim v'et haoretz avayom hashvi'i shabbat v'yinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day, he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. 
could all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol me'odecha. Ve'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha, ha'yom alevavcha. V'shinantam la'venecha, v'tepardabam p'shivtecha, v'yetecha, uv'lektecha, v'derechu shakpika, uv'kumika. U'kershatam la'ot ha'yadecha, v'heyu la'totvot b'inenecha, u'chetavtam ha'mazuzo p'techa, u'vishorecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Oh, come, behold the works of God, the nations at His feet. He breaks the bow and bends the spear and tells the wars to cease. Oh, mighty one of Israel, you are on our side. We walk by faith in God who burns the chariots with fire.
Shabbat Shalom. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, to chapter 12, where our portion, our double portion for this week will begin. And as you open the scripture, as always, I do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher b'chabanu mikol ha'amim Venetan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-torah ha-amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our portion for this week is a double portion where we have the portion called Tazria, which begins in Leviticus chapter 12, which means she conceives, to which the, the chapter of chapter 12 in Leviticus talks about a woman after she conceives gives birth to a male child or a female child and then what her period of uncleanliness is after that takes place. That portion continues on through chapter 13 where we talk about the uh, discussion of what leprosy is and all manner of skin conditions. And then our second portion begins in chapter 14 which is called Metzora which represents the, which means the leper or those that has been stricken with leprosy and how the entire process of how they are healed uh, is what's contained in Leviticus chapter 14 and our portions continue or uh, conclude with chapter 15 that talks about all manner of uncleanliness uh, that happens to us when it concerns certain bodily discharges. Now, this portion is one of the ones that is mainly thought of if you were to ever think about the book of Leviticus the old law and all the things that maybe those of us that are believers in God want to read the scripture and hear about all of his love, his loving kindness. These are not the passages that we are so inclined to pick up our Bible and read any time of the day uh, to be encouraged, to be uplifted. Um, The chapter 13 in Leviticus, I've said many times over, reads like a dermatologist's handbook that describes all the different types of scabs and lesions that can appear on the skin that would be, you know, that's for the priest to determine whether somebody has contracted what the scripture calls leprosy or a uh, and a skin affliction. The Hebrew word there is uh, zara, which means skin affliction. It doesn't necessarily always mean leprosy, which there is a uh, disease that we consider and call leprosy in modern day that is a uncurable uh, affliction of one's skin, and it's very noticeable when somebody has that skin disease. What we're talking about here in chapter 13 is just any kind of skin condition uh, or affliction that might show up and be noticeable. Um, When we're talking about chapter 15, when we're talking about all the different bodily discharges, these are not something we like looking all the time and, and seeing what makes us unclean. As I've said before, this portion of Leviticus is the owner's manual of the human body. What determines whether we are clean or unclean, what we are holy, what makes us holy, or or when we are unholy. And so if we're talking like the owner's manual of a car, you know, we were talking last week about uh, what we eat, the kind of fuel that is appropriate for our body. Here we're talking about what happens if you have a car and maybe it's leaking some fluid and suddenly your car is suddenly not in good working condition because you have some, some leaks and the gaskets are kind of leaking and you need to get these things fixed and the car is not in good working condition. Well, when you're 
human body is leaking certain things, such as blood or, or other fluids, uh, then you're not in good working condition. There is an element of you being unclean and, and you are not working at tip-top shape to where you are then can be in the presence of God. That's what we're talking about here. As I've said many times, the entire book of Leviticus is about holiness. It's about us being holy before the Lord. Exodus, we learned about the character of God. And he came and he dwelt amongst the children of Israel. Leviticus is talking about how we conduct ourselves to be holy, to be clean before the Lord, so that we can be in his presence. That's what it's about. It's about being clean and, and, and unclean, about being holy. And that's what these things are about. It's not there to, to gross us out. It's not there to embarrass somebody. But all of these things have, have to do with our ability to be upright, righteous, and holy before our Creator, before the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, so that we can be in His presence. These are things he asks us to do, asks us to be, to be holy, to be clean. Now, it's more than just skin conditions. It's more than just what you see on the surface and what appears to be, you know, you look at the physical thing that's happening to you, that you might look at your skin, you might, or whatever you might observe in you or in someone else, that it's not about what you see on the surface, but it's about what's going on underneath. It's about what is the principle that the scripture is trying to teach us. You know, we can look at here and we can read chapter 12, for instance, that talks about, you know, that a, a mother, after she gives birth, that when, a, when she gives birth to a male, she has a period of uncleanliness similar to her monthly menstrual cycle, but she's unclean for 40 days after she gives birth to a male, but then it says and prescribes that she's unclean for 80 days if she gives birth to a female. So one could look at this on the surface and say, okay, is there some sort of discrimination against females that a birth of a female child would cause a mother to be unclean for a longer period of time? And you could look on the surface and you could say, what is this all about? When in truth of fact, there's deeper things that are going on, first and foremost, about one being holy and appropriate and clean before they approach the Lord. We've talked about the priesthood, that they had to wash themselves before they were to ever go into the presence of the Lord. And in the same like manner that any of the common people of Israel had to make sure that they were right before the Lord, that they were clean, that they were appropriate before they entered into the presence of God, before they brought an offering, before they came and worshipped the Lord. There's one thing that can be thought of about this, that a woman, after she gives birth, medically, she should stay on bed rest for a period of time. She should tend to the child, take care of the child. They're in great deal of need and they are solely reliant upon the health and of the mother to be able to nourish and feed the child. That she should be concentrating on that as opposed to being clean and appropriate and getting back to the temple and worshiping the Lord. There's a priority there that's given for her to take care of the child before she goes and does any of those things. There's deeper studies when you go into the meaning of numbers and different things like that. And I've said this before, that whenever you see the number 4, 40, 4,000, that always points to the Messiah. So when we have the birth of a male child, the whole congregation of Israel is always looking for the Messiah, looking for the birth of those that will... Though, um, the one who will bring redemption, who will bring salvation. And so that number 40 for 40 days that a woman is unclean after giving birth to a male causes us to think or remember about the Messiah. So all of these different things um, 
come to mind when you go into the deeper study of this. It's also interesting, we have the passage in Luke chapter 2 where it's, where Mary, after giving birth to Yeshua, she did exactly what is prescribed in Leviticus chapter 12. If you haven't marked it down, Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, write that down next to Leviticus chapter 12. This is something that Mary, the mother of the Messiah, did according to Torah, so that everything to do with the life of the Messiah was in accordance with the law of Moses, with the instruction that came through Moses and to the children of Israel that the Messiah did not sin. He was he lived a life without sin, and even other aspects of his life, such as his mother, followed the prescribed procedure for becoming clean again after giving birth to him because there's a series of sacrifices that take place and offerings that are given because of this as well. There's always something more going on under the surface. That's what we can learn that we can talk about this passage. In fact, I actually love this Torah portion. I love this concept of leprosy, not because of all the skin conditions, but because what it causes us to think about and all the other connections to other parts of Scripture. Our entire uh, group of two Torah portions here is talking about this leprosy, and much of it is also talking about the cleansing of the leper. If somebody was to come back and then is declared clean and has been cured of leprosy, there's an amazing elaborate procedure in chapter 14 of what they are to do to show that they are now clean again. And now these passages have puzzled many for many years. Rabbis in Judaism, they don't understand all of these things. And they actually have relegated to the fact that this is something in the scripture that the Messiah will answer when he comes. Well, they don't believe Yeshua of Nazareth was the Messiah, but there's a certain, there's a great number of portions in our Bible, in our 66 books of the Bible that we have, that have both the Old and the New Testament in it, that have the stories of Yeshua, and there are so many other passages of Scripture that these things connect to. One of the most important things that Yeshua did after he was on the, gave the Sermon on the Mount, he healed the person with leprosy. He healed them. And these are things and details that my father will go into um, for the Brit Hadashah portion for this week. But there's so many other connections to Scripture. One other thing that we need to connect to leprosy is this. And the rabbis have figured this out, and many people also have discovered that when it comes to leprosy, when it comes to somebody who is ostracized from a community and has to be go live on their own, live outside of the camp, which is what it talks about if somebody contracts leprosy, they are to live and dwell outside of the camp. There is a deeper spiritual connection that has nothing to do with skin conditions and has everything to do with what we would speak or project onto somebody that would cause them to be separated from the camp. There is a connection to what someone says or such as evil speech that is connected to leprosy. Now this comes from Numbers chapter 12. That When we go later into our Torah portions here, we'll talk about this story. But it connects back to this one. And that's the story of Miriam who came and had a problem with Moses. When Moses had married an Ethiopian woman, or sometimes says a Cushite woman, amongst the, uh, amongst the children of Israel there, when they have escaped Egypt and they're in the wilderness. And she had a problem with that. She spoke against Moses and says, how dare you do this thing? Now, some people have looked at this and thought, that now is this sort of just a racist remark that Miriam would have a problem with this Cushite woman being a part of the family? 
The thing that we uh, don't remember all the time is that she was there within the camp of Israel. She was there. We assume she was probably there and heard the commandments from Mount Sinai. She was a part of the family of Israel. Why are we then speaking against somebody who was there within the camp that she would marry into and join the family? So it seems as if there was nothing against the woman. But the problem was, of course, that Miriam spoke against Moses. Now, the story continues that what happens? Miriam contracts leprosy. She has to leave the camp. She has to be cast out from the camp for seven days, and then she comes back into the camp. And so this is something that the rabbis have looked, and many of us can look as well, that what we say has to do with the contraction of leprosy. What we have to do is we have to guard what comes out of our mouth Because then what comes out of our mouth sometimes will reflect upon whether sin is present either in our life or would be projected on to someone else. What the rabbis say is this, is that when somebody would come and they would say they had leprosy or had the question of something, a skin lesion or an affliction of their skin, they would come and look and they would see, is there something going on in their life that would cause that to happen? Because spiritually what we believe is that a sin can actually have physical ramifications and will be reflected in the physical if there is some sort of spiritual sin going on. The rabbis say this, there's seven things that can cause leprosy. If somebody does these things, then leprosy can take place. Those things are slander, bloodshed, taking a vain oath, incest or adultery, Arrogance, robbery, or greed. These types of sins that if is present in anyone, that sometimes the Lord, who doesn't let the guilty go unpunished, will actually cause the sin, will actually manifest as some sort of physical appearance within the sinner. That's what can happen with leprosy. And that's what they believe about leprosy. And that actually makes sense with other parts of Scripture. You know, when the Lord, uh, when Yeshua heals the person with leprosy and says, go and sin no more, the question is, is what was the sin they were committing that caused them to have leprosy? There's sort of a connection there. Why is the Messiah talking about go and sin no more? Well, what does that have to do with a skin condition? It actually has everything to do with a skin condition. If somebody ever contracted leprosy, it was almost like a death sentence for someone. Because if it was found out that they truly had some sort of condition that manifested in, in their appearance, they were cast out of the camp. You wouldn't see them anymore. It was like a death sentence for someone. And when somebody is cast out of the community, sometimes they don't have to physically die for them to, be, have, to have been separated from a fellowship or from a community. You've probably seen this in your fellowships before where somebody has either exiled themselves from the community and they're no longer there. They didn't die, but it's, it's as if they're no longer alive within the family, uh, within the fellowship of a community or of a congregation. Why they left sometimes is the question. There are sometimes that people are, leave a congregation because somebody has said something about them that could be true, could be untrue, However, that word has gotten out and suddenly the rest of the community decides to ostracize them and send them out from the community. This is what we call spiritual leprosy. And this is what it is, is when somebody speaks 
that it can actually project onto somebody else and make everybody else think that they have leprosy and cause everybody to ostracize them, to send them away. We don't want to see them anymore. They're not welcome here anymore. Now, this is something that we have to be very cautious of, and, uh, cautious of, and many of us have seen this in our congregations, in our fellowships, in our communities. And it's when somebody has projected leprosy onto somebody else. And it's not that they had to physically afflict them. However, what they spoke and what they said is what caused it. We have to be very mindful of our speech in all things, in what we say about certain people, what we say about ourselves, in all things. There is scripture after scripture talking about being careful with what you say, with what comes out of your mouth, with which what befalls your lips. You know, we have the old saying back when we were a kid, and everybody kind of, I think, remembers this, and it's all sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That actually, biblically, is not true. <laughs> because the words that befall your lips, that you speak about somebody else, projects onto them something that is untrue and causes hurt, causes someone to disassociate and, to, and will break fellowship. Dissension amongst brethren is always caused by what somebody says. And the other thing, too, is this, is if ever, ever someone is caught in their lie, if what they said was maybe a, tr- a half-truth or a complete, an utter lie, then when truth comes out that you said something untrue, guess then who has leprosy then? You do. They then say about you, well, you can't trust a word that that person says. And they, what they're saying at that point is very true. You were caught in a lie. No one can trust what you say. And then how much fellowship are you going to have with the, with the fellowship, with the community? You might as well pack your bag up and go move, and move in with a leper colony where the rest of the liars all live. And they form their own little, you can form your own little group there. But amongst the community and the, the broader fellowship of the brethren, you're not going to be allowed in there. And people will not let you associate with them if that's the, the testimony of who you are. If you are caught as a liar, we should be very mindful of what we say. I have some scriptures here that are always an encouragement to me. And there's many more than this when it comes to minding our tongue, minding what we say and how important that is as we walk out our faith. Ephesians 4:29 says this, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers that what you everything what you say don't let anything corrupt come out of your mouth don't say something that is wrong incorrect because it can mislead the brethren speak what is good because that's what edifies the brethren proverbs 15:4 a wholesome tongue is a tree of life but perverseness in it breaks the spirit what that is is that you, what you say can absolutely destroy the spirit of someone physically it doesn't cause any harm Physically, there's no ailment. They get up, they, they, they can walk just fine. Every extremity works just fine. Physically, no harm. But the spirit of somebody can be utterly destroyed by what you say about somebody. And you've probably had conversations with friends and family that is exactly that. Look, so-and-so said this. And I just, I, I, can't, I can't trust them anymore. And I question whether I'm, I'm good enough for them or good enough for this, that, or the other thing. And somebody's spirit is just in anguish 
because of the words that came out of someone. Proverbs 18, verses 20 through 21. A man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth. From the produce of his lips he shall be filled. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. This is actually a connection to the entire passage of James chapter 3. Let's actually go there, because I did have a note here that I wanted to talk about that. And so let's just go ahead and review James chapter 3. This is talking about the untamable tongue, and that even the, that the tongue has a fire about it that it can do incredible things. Let me go ahead and here start at verse 6 of James chapter 3. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our member that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and every bird of every reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or the grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Who is wise in understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly and sensual, demonic. And where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The tongue, we have an amazing power in the words and the things that we can say. If you remember, God created the world by speaking it into existence. Now, I don't know if necessarily that we have the power to speak the world into existence. We're only made in the image of God. We are not God. But as being in the image of God, there still is some, as far as I believe, a residual power that God has when he spoke the world into existence. We can speak and impact things within the creation. Certain things that we say. We can make a vow of something and alter creation as to say, we are going to do this and this is what I will do. And that alters creation. That changes, that changes things when one makes a vow. We have a great deal of power and fire in the tongue. And what it does is, like it said, we curse men with our tongue. And some people might say, well, I didn't really hurt him. It's not like I struck him. But no, you, you cursed him. And maybe you say you didn't, well, I didn't curse him. Yeah, but did you use any curse words when you spoke about them? There's a reason they're called curse words. is because that's exactly what it does, is it causes harm. And we can't bless God with the same tongue. These things ought not to be so. That we bless God, but then we curse the image of God. And that whole last passage that I read, verse 13 on through 18, when it talks about that those that just lie against the truth and that that kind of wisdom does not send is sent is does not come from above it's earthly and it's demonic 
I'm basically describing a fellowship that is just consumed by lies. That if you can't trust anybody, you can't trust the, what the preacher says from the stage, you can't trust what the brethren share when they're having fellowship together, all of those things, it's just surrounded in earthly gossip. And it's just, there's no truth to be found if you're in a community that's just consumed by lies. But what you have to do is you have to seek out people who have the wisdom and knowledge to speak good things, things that are peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. Then you find peace amongst those that who are endeavoring to be peacemakers, those who endeavor to have kindness in their speech and not just be always speaking negatively of their brother or their pastor or wherever you might find yourself and whatever gossip might be swirling around you. That's what we have to avoid. Because the tongue is that powerful. Other scriptures that talk about this. Proverbs 21, 23. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. What you say has a chance to impact your very soul, your inwardmost being. That if you speak something that is unkind, you actually cause harm to your innermost self. Again, physically, you're fine. But it causes harm that we don't even recognize sometimes. Psalm 141 verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. We have to ask the Lord sometimes to guard what we say. Sometimes something might happen in your life and you want to say something to that person. You want to say, it's like, I'm going to go tell them what for. If we're being humble about it, if we're willing to yield, if we're seeking peace in the situation, sometimes we might first need to look to the Lord and ask, Lord, guard my lips so that I don't say anything out of turn. Maybe I shouldn't say anything at all. But if it comes up and I find myself in a conversation with that person or addressing that particular subject, Lord, I pray that you would guard what I say so that I do not sin out of unkindness, out of malice, out of wickedness. Because that kind of speech, with the power that my mouth has, can cause harm to someone else. It could cause harm to me, especially if I speak out of turn or speak something that's untrue. We need to always be cautious of this. The Messiah also spoke of this. This was always a curious phrase, especially when I read this again this week. Matthew 15, verse 11. The Messiah said this, Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth defiles the man. Interesting. He's talking about what is defiling to somebody, and that goes hand in hand with what makes you clean. Like I said, we're in Leviticus. We're talking about what is clean and what is unclean. And so it's not what goes into the mouth that makes a man clean. Okay, so that's what we eat. We just got done in the previous portion talking about kosher and what is what we eat that you these things you shall eat they're clean for you to eat these things you shall not eat okay if you go back to leviticus chapter 11 nowhere does it say if you eat detestable things you are unclean it doesn't say that it says you shall not eat them and it also says what you if you touch it if you touch the carcass of an animal that is unclean, that's what makes you unclean. It's not about eating it, but it's about touching it. Now, I was joking with some of my friends here in the office and was saying, well, you, you, you can't eat it without touching it. But if you look at the scripture of it, it's not the process of eating it that makes you unclean, it's the process of touching it. So when Yeshua says, 
that nothing that goes into the mouth defiles the man. That's perfectly in line with the words of Scripture. It doesn't say that eating it makes you unclean. Touching it makes you unclean. But he then turns it around and says this. It's what comes out of the mouth of somebody that's what defiles you. Well, that's what, those are words. Those are things. Now, that's also some discharges that can come out of your mouth too if you happen to be sick. Uh, that makes you unclean as well. But what we're talking about here are the words that you speak. About what you say is what causes, can, can defile you. And that's what we have to worry about. That's what we have to be concerned about. What is it? Do we guard our speech? Do we ask the Lord to guard our lips in the things that we say? Because in the world that we live in, there are many things that you will hear in life that you will wish that you never heard. There will be things that you say in life that you wish you could take back. You wish you never said it. You wish you never heard it. You wish somebody else never said it. This is likely to happen. We have to continue to look to the Lord so that he would continue to protect us and guard us of those things that we say. You know, when we might make fun of a brother and we might, you know, we might think that we're having fun or we have a good relationship with somebody that we can joke about them. If you have a friend that maybe is losing their hair and there's baldness on them, you might joke and you just be like, oh, well, you know, you joke about that they're bald. They don't have any hair. You might have a beautiful flowing head of hair, but you joke with them. It's good that we have some relationships that are comfortable with that. However, we specifically have a scripture here that says baldness is not leprosy here in our passage. And so you look at that and you're like, okay, but you also have to double check. Are you causing somebody to, to hurt in their spirit? Is that something that somebody can be self-conscious about, have an insecurity about? You have to be mindful that you are not hurting them from the inside. Physically, there's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with not having any hair on your head. But spiritually, are you hurting them if you're saying something like that? And maybe you're not hurting them. Maybe you're not even hurting yourself. But what if somebody else hears you and does not understand the same relationship that you have with your friend? That's why you have to be mindful of the things that you say. You never know who is listening. And let me inform you, if you didn't realize this or didn't remember this today, the Lord hears everything that you say as well. The words that you speak continue on into the heavens, into the cosmos. Scientifically, the, the waveform of, of audio and what we hear go, that goes into our ears, scientifically never ceases. It continues to just sort of flow and, and it can't be heard anymore. But the words are actually physically changing the world around us. And God made this physical world. God exists and, and operates in this physical world. And I guarantee you that God heard what you said. Sometimes he'll make it known that they will hear, somebody else will hear something that you said and you had no idea that they heard it. That's why we have to look inside ourselves and be mindful of what we say. What is going on inside of us? Is our heart and our spirit right with the Lord? The skin condition, leprosy is very interesting here, and this is a phrase that I heard. Leprosy afflicts the covering of us to where when you see something going wrong with the covering, what happens is you have to kind of wipe it away, remove it or whatever, and then suddenly something underneath is revealed. When you see something wrong with the covering, then you suddenly question, what's going on under the surface? If you have a, and what we're talking about is the facade or the mask that people put on before others. 
that whatever is a covering before you, when damage comes to that thing, suddenly you have to reconcile with what's going on underneath. What are you not doing inside your own heart, inside your own spirit, inside your own mind? That would cause, you know, why, why is something physically on me failing? What am I not doing right? What am I feeding myself with that's not right? That's what a lot of times, you know, when you talk about, like, uh, if you have a teenager that has acne, and then you say, oh, well, they eat too much chocolate or something like that. Well, actually, spiritually, there's kind of a connection similar to that, that it's like, what is going into your body that is causing you to break out? What is going, what are you feeding yourself, physically or spiritually, that's causing your body to react in a certain way? That's what this entire subject causes us to think about. To think about what is going on inside our hearts, inside our spirits, and are we doing what is right before the Lord and what is clean and appropriate? Because right now our body is showing that we're unclean. We're not, we're not ready to be in the presence of God based on the way we look and whatever is afflicting me at this time. But what we should be concentrating on is what's going on on the inside. How do I seek repentance for the sins and the mistakes that I've made? How do I ask for forgiveness for the things that I said that maybe I wish I hadn't? How do we go to our brother and reconcile with the things that they have said? How do we clear these things up and clear up this confusion? And when, cause when things on the surface look unhealthy, that's usually because something underneath is not healthy either. A tree that produces bad fruit... If the tree looks fine, what's going on underneath the ground? What do the roots look like? What's in the soil? What's it being nourished with? Is it getting enough water? Is it getting enough nourishment to produce good fruit? Everything else looks fine, but the fruit is not producing. Then other times you can see a tree that is very unhealthy and is not worthy of being there, and that those trees get cut down. Those trees are no longer a part of that orchard when it's very obvious. Disease can manifest in that way. Sometimes it's spiritual, sometimes it's physical, but it's all connected because it's all a part of the same body. Now, when we're talking about here, and if we move on uh, quickly here in the rest of our passage here, we talk about the cleansing of the leper. When somebody would come and they would show that they are now clean before the Lord, this was an amazing thing in a ceremony. This didn't really happen very often amongst the priests, and my father will talk about this in the uh, Brit Hadashah, that there was an, a very elaborate procedure to when somebody was cleansed of leprosy. Very elaborate. Then there's so many sacrifices that would take place, and it was a multi-day process, and then blood from one of the offerings would be put on their right ear, their right hand, the right thumb, and the right big toe, and then oil would be put upon them on their ear, and their thumb, and their big toe, and oil would be poured on them. This was the only similarity that this procedure in the altar service compares to, is when Aaron the high priest was ordained to be the high priest. That this was a place of honor where somebody, you took somebody who was lowly or somebody who was just a common man of Israel and you elevate them up to be such as Aaron was elevated to the level of high priest. If anybody was ever cleansed of leprosy, somebody who was considered dead as far as anyone was concerned, cast out of the, the community, that then he comes back and he's been cleansed, he's been healed. The priest didn't do the cleansing. The priest simply acknowledged and declared that he was clean, but the cleansing obviously had to happen by some other means. And can you believe, or can you imagine, if somebody had basically been left for dead, 
ostracized by the community because he was leprous. He comes, he's clean, he then, the, the multi-day procedure of the priest going for him, pouring water, or pouring oil upon his head, making many sacrifices, and then standing up and saying, this man is clean. Can you imagine the status change of that man to then when he walks amongst the community, how people are going to look at him now? Can you imagine that? That someone who was thought dead is now alive again. It's almost like somebody being resurrected from the dead when this took place. And that's what's amazing about this. And that is the, thi- the thing that we can sort of imagine or believe that we're doing if we ever go and are seeking forgiveness. We forgive somebody for something they said. If you ever receive forgiveness for something you said, there once was leprosy. There once was somebody who was ostracized from the community, but they came back. They're now healed, they're now clean, and we can all be in fellowship again. It's as wonderful and as joyous as if somebody has returned from the dead. And that's what we should endeavor to do. We can do that in our communities. We can do that by removing the leprosy from us, minding what we say, forgiving those that have spoke against us as well. And that's what we're endeavoring to do. It's as if someone is coming back from the dead, which is obviously a joyous thing and is the greatest thing that Yeshua ever did was conquering the grave and returning from death. We can do that spiritually with one another, with our brethren, by extending that love and always being mindful of the things that we say and seeking peace in all things, being gentle, being willing to yield on the things that we say and not listening to gossip and slander and evil speech that might be swirling amongst our communities and gossip that makes its way amongst the community. If we can guard against these things, then we can receive all of that blessing, the same blessing that Yeshua showed us by being resurrected from the dead. We can do so spiritually within ourselves and amongst our brethren, and what a joyous time that is. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for this instruction, Lord, and we thank you for the things we can learn about as you talk about these means of being holy and being clean before you. Even if we're talking about skin conditions and and discharges, Father, we look to the principle that we can know and understand, and we pray that we would learn and be encouraged by these things. Father, may we... Seek peace in all things. And may we always, we pray, Lord, guard our tongue, guard our lips, guard our mouths, and always make us mindful of the things that we say because of the harm and the power that each of our voices have and can do. So, Father, I pray that you would just pour out your mercies upon us, that you would forgive us our sins and, and help us, Lord, to speak among the brethren and seek forgiveness amongst the community and those who we have wronged. We thank you for your instruction and the teachings of old and all of your commandments, Lord. And we thank you for the commandment to love our neighbor, love you, Lord, because all of the other commandments, Lord, hang on those things. So teach us, Lord, of your love and how to love you better and how to love our neighbor better and how to love ourselves better as well. So we love you and bless you and thank you on the Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chayalam netah betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen.
Shabbat Shalom. Um, I have a number of scriptures from the New Testament that I want to share with you um, as a response to our Torah portion this week, which is, by the way, a double portion, so there's a number of scriptures. But the first one I want to direct your attention to is if you go to Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to look at the first four verses there, so move your finger to Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. And let me, by way of introduction, um, Ephraim has taught us about some of the things that the Torah teaches about leprosy. And, and in the second portion, it talks about the law of the cleansing of the leper. And the first portion was explaining the diagnosis of leprosy and how it's to be treated. Highly contagious, must be separated, they're classified as unclean. In the ancient days... And by the way, even to this day, um, when you see someone who has this leprosy, this disease that it's specifically speaking to, it, it, it is an example of what they call the living dead. And it is gruesome, to say the least. Uh, not only has to have a debilitating disease, uh, but it, they are completely... Um, isolated from the rest of community and family and, and, and so forth. And the only people that they have to congregate with, the only people they can be in fellowship with, is other people in the same condition with them. And so I'm sure you've heard of the ancient times of a leper colony, and these would be the places where the lepers would gather to separate themselves from the rest of the community. If a leper went into, say, the market or the village, he had to announce so in front of him, so other people, he would announce he's unclean, I'm unclean, unclean, so that people would, nobody would bump into him, nobody would accidentally be confronted with him. He had to give fair warning to people that, uh, that he had this. If you just stop and think about that for a moment, how emotionally that would have affected a human being. Uh, it's terrible. It was a terrible disease. And in fact, in those days, it was considered the worst of worst. Um, today, we might say that cancer or something like that is the worst of the worst, but we don't treat people who have cancer as being unclean. But in leprosy, there's commandments about you have to treat them as unclean, and there's complete separation uh, from them. When it comes to the second portion, Tazria, of, that we have, and it's talking about the law of the cleansing of the leper, because let's be, let's be real honest, that leprosy is an incurable disease. Yet the Torah speaks of instances in which it will be possible for a leper to be cleansed. Which, by the way, is an act of God. That is not a doctor. That's an act of God. God has to do that. There was, in the days of Yeshua, a very clear explanation and expectation that when the Messiah of Israel would come, that lepers would be cleansed. And in fact, this was, was going to be one of the signs to the priests in the temple. They were not expecting the Messiah to show up in the temple and announce, hey, I'm the Messiah. What they were expecting was suddenly there would be many lepers coming to present themselves according to the law of the cleansing leper that they had been cleansed. And that when the priest would see a number of these people come in, that would be the question. How were you cleansed? Who did you speak with? Who, who helped you with this? Because that would be the sign of who the Messiah was. And, 
and that that wasn't the only sign that they were expecting. They were expecting to see uh, people who were born blind suddenly have the testimony of seeing. They were expecting to see people who had been born lame uh, come and were healed. They were expecting them to come, and and that that was going to be the signal that the Messiah is in the land. If you recall, uh, John the Baptist, just shortly before his death, dispatched uh, some disciples to Yeshua, and it was a very intriguing question. John was asking from the heart, are you the expected one, or should we look to another? And Yeshua's answer comes back to the expectation. He says, you go back and you tell John that the blind see, the lame walk, and the leper is cleansed. And he was speaking to this great expectation of the cleansing of a leper. He was talking about acts that only God could do. A doctor, you know, if you get blinded, a doctor may be able to assist you to get your sight back. Because you already had sight to begin with. If, if you suddenly go lame, a doctor may be able to re, rebuild or restructure your leg and you can walk again. But if you're born that way, that deformity is from the beginning. There's nothing for the doctor to repair. It, that's the way it is. That, that's the best it's going to be. Um, and so there's nothing to repair because that's, that is the way it is. And in the case of leprosy, incurable. Why, you know, all they could do is treat symptoms and try to make you a little more comfortable. But they couldn't cleanse you of it. They couldn't eliminate or cure it. And so the, this is one of the signs of God, the works of God that the Messiah was to do when he would come. That would be the testimony to the people. We're going to hear Yeshua speak directly to that in these instances. Now, let me take you to Matthew chapter 8, uh, verse 1. And uh, to look at how these incidents happened in his ministry. And when he had come down from the mountain and great multitudes following him, and behold, a leper came to him and bowed down to him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Yeshua said to him, See that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded for a testimony to them. Now, we have an interesting contrast here. He tells him after he's cleansed him, and by the way, to cleanse him, he touched him. The law says you can't come into physical contact, you become unclean. He touched him, and instead of Yeshua becoming unclean, the man became clean because Yeshua touched him. And, and then dispatching him, well, first of all, he said, don't tell anybody. Now, I'm going to show you a parallel passage to this, and I'm going to show you what happened when this same leopard got so excited he went off and told it. He didn't follow this counsel. He went off in joy telling everybody that, that he had been cleansed. He'd been cleaned by Yeshua. And by the way, it caused serious damage to Yeshua's ministry, and he had to alter some of his plans. And I'm going to show you that. That's the reason why he told him, don't tell anyone. This is too dramatic. This is too powerful. This, this will cause the people to react uh, in a way that may inhibit my ability to do what I'm trying to do. And I'll show you the parallel passage in just a moment. But then, specifically, the instruction he did give, I want you to go tell the priest, though. Because they were the ones who had the expectation that when the Messiah comes to the land, 
lepers will be coming to them wanting to follow the procedure for the cleansing of the leper, which is a seven-day procedure. And in fact, it's one of the most elaborate temple procedures that Moses has given to us. And this was the disturbing, if you will, question that uh, occurred amongst the priesthood. They did a survey of all the commandments of Moses. How did he tell us to do these sacrifices and this particular sacrifice and do it in this way and so forth? But when it comes to the law, the cleansing of the leper, there's more detail given by Moses on that ritual than any other ritual in the entire temple service. So the priests reasonably asked, why? Why did Moses give us so much information on this? And the, the answer was, because... That is what the Messiah will come and do, and that's what we are to pay attention to, you know, when the Messiah comes to the land. We're supposed to see the evidence of the, the leper is cleansed. And so he's telling them, go to be a testimony to them. Now, we believe that he did eventually go. Uh, to the temple and go through the procedure. There's nothing to say he didn't do it, but he didn't follow his instruction about not telling anyone. So let me take you to a parallel uh, passage, and it's in the Gospel of Mark to this event. Mark chapter 1. Because this event, by the way, happened early in Yeshua's ministry. In Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 40, And for the five verses that follow, it reads like this. And a leper came to him, beseeching him, and um, falling on his knees before him, saying to him, If you're willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand, and he touched him, and he said, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he, he sternly warned him, and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a testimony to them. Now that's a repeat of what we heard in Matthew. But then it goes on to say this, but he went out, and he began to... To proclaim it freely and to spread the news about to such an extent that Yeshua could no longer publicly enter a city but stayed out in unpopulated areas and they were coming to him from everywhere. Uh, this leper, when he was cleansed, he was so overjoyed, he wanted to tell everybody. And what it did was it affected the people in the crowds to where the there was so many people coming to Yeshua now, he couldn't actually enter a city. There's not enough room in the street. There's, it, it, it's blocked. It's jammed up. He, he couldn't even get into the city to be able to speak to the people in the city. What he had to do was he had to set up his ministry outside of cities, out in the open side, so that the people within would come to him. He was willing to go to where the people were. And this action caused that to be blocked and so that the people had to come to him. When it comes to the subject of God answering prayer for us, the movement of the Holy Spirit amongst us in our assemblies, the scripture gives us many, in fact, instructions about there are certain things that we can do that can block our prayers and that we can quench the work of the Holy Spirit. And we're told those things to avoid 
those things so that God is able to freely do what God wants to do. You want to know why in this country, the United States of America, you don't see just rampant spiritual things taking place because, by the way, we have more Bibles here, more teaching about God here than any place else in the world. Why don't we see just God blossoming all over the place over this country? I'll tell you why. Because we're blocking the Lord and prohibiting the Lord from doing what he really wants to do. We're actually getting in his way. In fact, what God does amongst us, quite honestly, is in spite of us. Not necessarily with the aid of us. If we could just get this vision straight and get this one straight, that we work in cooperation with the Lord. Let me tell you one of the biggest ways we get in trouble with the Lord. And a lot of ministries do this. They sit down and they kind of make an assessment of the need of the brethren. And they say, well, we see this need amongst the brethren. And you know what? We, my ministry, my teaching, so I'm going to go address that need. And we get in front of the Lord. The Lord knows about that need. The Lord has every intention of answering that need. But if you decide that you're going to usurp the position of the Lord, and you're going to go do it before the Lord goes and does it, guess what you do? You just get in the way of things and you gum it all up. For what the Lord really wants to do. And I believe the true wisdom of a true teacher is one in which it says, I have nothing to teach to the people. Lord, did you have something you wanted to teach to the people? And I will just offer myself as a voice and a person. I will go and do what you want to talk about and what you would like to share with the people. Not me setting the program or the agenda. And whenever we start to do that, I believe that we literally become a stumbling block in front of the Lord, that we become a restriction to what the Lord could do. And this cleansing this leper and his over-exuberance to not follow the instruction of the Lord about declaring it, uh, because he thought, hey, you know, we should tell everybody about this. Well, the Lord was going to tell him. In his own good time, so it would be done right. But instead, he took it upon himself to do it for the Lord, and all he did was he caused difficulty for the Lord in ministering to the bread. There's a tremendous lesson uh, in that um, that comes forth, and it comes from this thing about the cleansing of the leper. Now let me take you to another instance of where the cleansing of the leper and the whole business about clean and unclean comes into it. Let me take you back to Matthew again, only this time let's go to chapter 9. And this is more about unclean status as opposed to leprosy per se. In Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 20 and through verse 26, let me read that to you. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For he was saying to herself, she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I shall get well. But Yeshua turning and seeing her said, daughter, uh, take courage, your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. And when Yeshua came into the official's house and, and, and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he began to say, depart for the girl. Excuse me, i got a wrong passage here. Um, the, the, um, let me just stop at verse 22 there. Let me show you the parallel passage now. 
that goes with that, which is Mark again, only this time it's in Mark chapter 5, where you're going to see this particular story repeated. Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 25. This reads as follows. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much of the, uh, at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing Yeshua came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I touch his garments, I shall get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed in her affliction. And immediately Yeshua perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the multitude pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now, again, parallel passage, but there's a few more details in this one from Mark than we got from the one in Matthew. Matthew tended to summarize this a little bit more. Uh, The cloak, the garment that Yeshua was wearing uh, that she reached out and grabbed was this. And what she grabbed was the fringe of a talit. Now, the translators don't give you that specificity, but from the Hebrew standpoint, we understand that's exactly what took place. That she reached out and grabbed the sitzits and the fringe of the garment. Now, for those of you who understand what a talit is and what the fringes and how God told us to do this, to wear the fringes and the sitzits, the tassels that we wear, and the meaning behind those, that makes the story even more powerful. These are the signs that we're to wear to remind us to always hear and obey the commandments of the Lord, to not follow after our eyes to to follow the Lord. That the commandments of the Lord are to be the primary way that we bind ourselves to the Lord, that we become attached to the Lord. The... uh, And with that understanding, she literally was reaching out. Are you ready for this? She was reaching out, taking hold of the living Torah that he represented. The living word of God. And his words, you know, where he talks about her faith healing her, because she was believing in the words of God. Um, And when he would pronounce that you're clean he was literally pronouncing the word of God into the life that was creating new tissue just like when God spoke and he created the heavens and the earth you know God can speak to a situation he can touch a situation and completely transform it he's the creator you don't think he has the ability to recreate tissue you don't think he has the ability to recreate things that have become corrupted He has that ability. He has that power and that authority. And that's what he sensed. 
that had gone from him was the power to create new. And so he turns and speaks to affirm, you know, the work of God. These are, a lot of people say, oh, these are just wonderful miracles. Well, they are miracles, but they're way more than miracles. This is the evidence that Yeshua of Nazareth is the living word of God. He's the son of God. He's God. He has the power of God. Down at the level of walking around like a simple man, he still retains the power of God at that level. Uh, Whenever I hear uh, people challenge the deity of Yeshua, was he God or not God? When I hear people challenge uh, the idea that he wasn't really who he claimed to be, he's not who we believe him to be, I always go to this simple story and I say, explain to me how that happened. You think that's a coincidence? You think that's happenstance? I don't know where, where, how your brain processes this stuff, but if you can't process that, you are, you are flawed to the core in failing to understand, you know, even things you witness. You just don't get it. You just don't understand the works of God. Now, we stare and we look at the whole creation, and we in awe look at the creation. We see these beautiful scenes. Do we really get the connection that God created that? No, I believe a believer does. When we see the miracle, do we really see that was the hand of God that did that? Or do we think it was the preacher who did his thing and, uh, and he had the power and, and he, he made it happen? Or that it was fake and it wasn't really true? Or, you know, what, what, what goes through our head? Um, this was a stunning event um, when this happened to this woman. And by the way, you can feel the plight of the lady. She exhausted all of her funds. She exhausted all of her security in an effort to, to gain healing from this. Now here's the other thing that's kind of interesting is where um, in the words where he says, you know, has made you well. Let me take you to the verse where it uh, specifically says that. Um, the uh, Well, in both of those passages, it uses the phrase that she was made well. But in the original language, that's not what it says. Are you ready for this? In the original language, in the original manuscript, it says that was when she was saved. She wasn't made well. She was saved. Because the truth of the matter is, and the reason why the translators don't like that, and they want to say made well doing to health, is because it gets a little confusing to them as to what in the world is the testimony. What's really being said here that that's salvation? Because we have a very defined definition of salvation in our faith. You know, it comes from faith, our sins are forgiven, and all this kind of stuff. But he's using that kind of language to explain what had just happened to the leper and what had just happened to this woman. You just got saved. Let me explain why. Salvation, by definition in the Bible, includes the status that we just had from the holiday, Passover. You are dead in your sins. 
But if you can get that sin problem taken care of, if you can get the consequences of what the sin has brought death into your life, and it's just manifesting itself in a disease called leprosy or uncleanness or whatever is going on, well, that's, those are evidence of, of death is in you. That when he saves you and he removes that, basically what he said, he, you just saw a picture of salvation. Every one of us, whether we realize it or not, when we get saved, when we come to the point of salvation of the Messiah, it's no more of a miracle than the cleansing of a leper. We were totally unclean to God. We were at the same status of the walking dead. We're walking around on the earth and we're bearing death upon us. And so when the Lord comes and get, grants us salvation, he literally heals us from that. He reverses the status of who we are and makes us anew again. And in fact, that's what Paul teaches. When you become a believer in the Messiah, you are a new creation. The creator has come in and by the power of creation, he has created you new. And you're no longer corrupted you are clean. And by the way, by the definition of what? The law. According to the definition of the law. Uh, a lot of my uh, New Covenant brethren who think the law doesn't have any bearing on them, they don't want to hear all about this stuff. You know, ask them the question, um, do you consider yourself to be clean in the Lord after you've accepted the, the, the Messiah and after he is, has forgiven you? So do you believe, according to the biblical principles, you are now clean before the Lord? They'll all say yes. And I said, where would you get the authority and the definition for that? When Yeshua pronounced you're clean, what, what definition is he referring to? He's referring to the one in this Torah portion. This is the Torah portion that teaches about what clean and unclean is. About what, the, how we, we bear death in our bodies. And the excretements and other things that come from us are very uncomely. They are not nice. Nobody wants to, nobody wants to come in contact with somebody else's snot for crying out loud. I mean, it's like... Ugh! But that's what comes from us as mortals. On a daily basis. Spiritually, it's even worse. And until the Lord comes and make us clean, and we follow his definition, then things are transformed, truly transformed. The, um, there's one other passage that I want to show you from the New Testament uh, that deals with the subject that our Torah portion ties into, and that's from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 17. If you join me there. Instead of being a single leper or a single person, he's going to deal with a group of people now that are going to have the issue. So if you go to Luke chapter 17 and beginning at verse um, 11, let me read to you this particular story that took place. And it came about while he was on the way to Jerusalem that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a certain village, ten leprous men who had stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Yeshua, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And it came about as they were going, they were cleansed. Just following the instruction that the Lord said, suddenly they were cleansed. 
Now one of them, when he saw that he had been cleansed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. And Yeshua answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was not what was no one found who turned back to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Again, this is another reference in the actual manuscripts that says your faith has saved you. That's what the more accurate translate, your faith has saved you. And they don't, a lot of teachers don't understand, this is a picture of salvation. This is a model of salvation. You're unclean, you're full of leprosy, God removes death from you, and you become a new creature and, and you're alive and clean. Because of the salvation of God. Um, what I find very intriguing about this particular story um, is that he's with the disciples and he wants to teach the disciples a particular lesson that I call a lesson in how to do ministry. And I have found this to be true in my ministry. And I'm not, I'm not trying to make any complaint about anyone that I've been associated with. Let me just repeat to you what Yeshua taught, has taught here and what he taught me. We're going to go out and we're going to minister to a whole lot of people. But only one in ten are going to come back and say thank you or, or share with you to help you to continue to do it. Only one in ten. Are, even though you effectively minister to ten, only one in ten are going to come back and you're going to get anything reciprocal so that you can continue to minister and so forth. The average national public ministry out of a hundred people that they minister to, only between 8 and 13% of them will respond back to them. Only 8 to 13%. Why? Because that's the 1 in 10 thing. That's the 1 in 10. I, when I learned this many years ago, as a, as a young man, I, based on this story, I committed myself to the Lord. I said, Lord... You're going to do a lot of great things for me. Let me be the one in ten. Let me be that one. You know, that comes and doesn't forget to say thank you to you. Doesn't forget to glorify you for the good things you've done for me. To be appreciative of what you... The, Yeshua certainly took note of it. He certainly did take note. Now, the others were doing exactly what he had told them to do, and they were fine, but this one... And then here's the other part that really gets me about it. Yeshua also takes note of it. Wasn't this the one foreigner that was with us? (laughs) The one Gentile? And oh, by the way, let me tell you, and this is from real-world experience, the Gentiles (laughs) have responded way better than my Jewish brethren to the gospel good news of the Messiah King coming and doing the work of redemption. The messianic ministry as a whole has a very small minority of what we call Jewish believers. But the interesting thing is a small number of Jewish believers is the appeal God has used as the light, if you will, to the nations, so that many others would come. And it's, it's really, it goes back to what God promised Abraham. In your seed will all the families of the earth be blessed. Those who descend from you 
will be a light to many peoples, and there will be many who will come. And here's Yeshua taking note that out of the ten, uh, it was the foreigner, it was the one who was the Gentile who came back and said thank you, who got it, who figured this out. Now, I also, uh, you know, I, I always share this with people. When you read certain things in the New Testament, the, there's a little piece of detail um, that is given right at the start of this. Let me, let me take you again to verse 11 that is worthy of additional consideration. And it came about when he was on the way to Jerusalem that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Hmm. Now, Galilee's way up at the north. And Samaria is this region uh, that is between Galilee and Jerusalem in this northern region, what used to be the ancient lands of the tribes of Ephraim and the, and the ten other tribes. There's a well-known place along the path from the Galilee. If you just come down the Galilee, the Jordan River, there's a well-known place in the land of Israel to this day that you basically have to pass through if you're going to Jerusalem. And if today you were to go to that place, it's a place called Beit Shon. It's one of the ten cities of Decapolis, the ten cities. Now, the reason why you should take note of this is because the place was called ten cities and there were ten lepers. That should be a clue to you. Hey, something's happening here. I need to pay attention to what the Lord is doing. Because that's not coincidence. If you go today, the, the state of Israel has done a major archaeological thing to basically dig out, uncover, and reveal the ancient city of Beit Shan. Beit Shan has played a very, very important role in the history of Israel that mostly you don't hear about. This is the place where uh, King Saul uh, was basically killed. They nailed him up to the wall of the city, and the Israelites went and stole Saul's body back to bury him properly. The major events, it's at the bottom, it's at the bottom of the Jezreel Valley. It's at the point, the southern point of the Jezreel Valley. And by the way, what's that, what is in Jezreel Valley? Armageddon. Armageddon extends down to this place. This is a point that connects Galilee down to the south of the river on your way to Jerusalem, connects the valley of Jezreel. This is the place where this this was a focal point that usually, if you were an Israelite, you didn't go through there. You went inland and came down because you wanted to avoid that place because that was a very sinful, terrible city. This was this city is known for being one of the grossest examples of the Roman influence of anywhere in the world. They created this city. I've been to the city. They're restoring the thing. It's an incredible uh, Roman structure. You see the Roman baths. You see the pillars and the columns and the, and the cardo. Uh, it's made through the streets. The ancient Roman design for a city. And they have public toilets for crying out loud that are still there. And I mean, it's and they 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 have a they have a, a temple to the god of wine. Let's worship wine. Okay, And if you're looking for a place that would explain to you about temple prostitutes, you don't have to go anyplace else in the world. This is where you find out about temple prostitutes, male and female. 
Because underneath that temple, all along the row, are these little compartments carved out with a little flat surface. And so when you came to worship the god of wine, why, you would take the pleasure of a, of a prostitute or a harlot. And you just walk down and you go into one of these things and, and that's where you did your thing. And it, this is in the middle of the city. And the, it just everything you see in the city begs of something despicable and contrary to good sense in the Lord. Yeshua walked through that path. I believe he walked through that car though. I believe he walked right through the place on his way down to Jerusalem. And that's where he met these ten lepers. Apparently the people in the city didn't have that big a problem with lepers hanging around. That's how corrupt they were. That's how unclean they were. They didn't even follow laws of clean and unclean. And it's one of the, uh, if you go back and you actually study it, it is a tremendous study on Roman culture in terms of socially how did people interact and the contrast between the things we learn of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, and just rampant seeking personal pleasure and other nonsense. You know what I found so fascinating about that place? Our our whole nation is based on the design of Beit Shan. And socially, we're getting there. We are getting to the social structure of Beit Shan. Thank goodness the Lord still walks through there to cleanse people. And thank goodness there are even foreigners who come back and say, thank you, Lord. Now, let me just give you one last uh, conclusion that I'll share with you from a personal standpoint of, of um, conducting ministry. I, uh, from these stories, uh, one of the things that has inspired me and encouraged me in the ministry is not to have great expectations, to just let the Lord do what the Lord wants to do with the people. To not set a bar or standard that I need to see people respond to my ministry at a certain level. They're not supposed to be responding to me. They're supposed to be responding to the Lord. So I should not be laying any expectation on them as to how they should perform or how much they should give or how much they should interact or volunteer. I, I have no expectation whatsoever. But I do take note of the one in ten who does come. And by the way, that's about the way it works out with this ministry. We minister to ten, and one will reciprocate in some way. Could be a simple note. Could be a gift. It could be participation. And it could be them they come and volunteer to join with us to do some of the work. And we are very grateful for the one in ten. We believe when we see that we truly are doing the same ministry that Yeshua did because those were the results of his ministry amongst us and if we're just doing the same thing that the Messiah did I'm good with that I don't have to put any other expectations on the brethren and besides that we all know it's his flock not my flock not anybody else's flock any pastors and shepherds and teachers out there, we are under shepherds. We are not the shepherd. We work for the shepherd. So it's his flock. 
and he gets to determine exactly what will happen with it. And he has a plan, and I'm just thankful, and I've pursued the path to be the one in ten. You know, to come back and say thank you to the Lord for what he's done for me. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the teaching of the of being clean and unclean, giving us a clear definition of how to be before you. We thank you for cleansing us. We thank you, Lord, for moving us from death to life. We thank you, Lord, for cleansing us. And, Lord, as we press forward, we ask, Lord, that you might use us, you know, to assist in others coming into the same status of being saved and of being cleansed from all of their sins. We thank you for all of this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing. Shalom. 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 a gift from God has put a smile upon your face He's got the whole world in His hands so obey His commands and you will know peace Shalom Shalom
Ciao.